Young people's fiction these days comes in ever faster waves of franchises seeking to ride particular crazes for wizards, zombies, vampires or the post-apocalyptic. In many of these books, TV series and films, the same themes recur. Societies in which the rules have broken down, in which there are no people in positions of authority or even formal leadership structures. These are stories built on disillusionment and a suspicion of social structure, which often acts as a threat to our heroes, who invariably are just average kids. Rugged individuals must make do, striving to stay alive, at least until the end of the book or the episode. Our young people absorb, but are also attracted to, these worlds with their broken-down societies or absent leaders. This might be no more than a reflection of the slightly maudlin phase many of us go through as teenagers. At first glance, an obsession with the post-apocalyptic would seem more understandable in those of us who grew up during the Cold War, rather than the second decade of the 21st century. But the disillusionment reflected in fictional domains coincides with the global return of the strongman to politics, and with these two conflicting trends comes a belated alarm that the world is not naturally tending to the Western democratic model that many of us smugly assumed had triumphed and become irresistible at the end of the Cold War. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hi, and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name is Angus. Laura Tingle is the chief political correspondent for the ABC's 7.30 program and was in the thick of the chaos that took hold of the government in August as a leadership spill saw Scott Morrison take over as Prime Minister from Malcolm Turnbull. Laura is the author of the quarterly essays Great Expectations, Government, Entitlement and an Angry Nation, and Political Amnesia, How We Forgot to Govern. She is here with me now to discuss her third quarterly essay, Follow the Leader, Democracy and the Rise of the Strongman. Laura, thank you for joining me. G'day, Angus. So considering, I mean, I imagine this essay would have been going off to the printers or would have been planned to go to the printers pretty close to the time that the Liberal Party went into spill. So considering that, is this the best timed quarterly essay ever or the worst? Uh, look, I think it's the best uh, timed essay. Um, I was talking to David Marr the other day, who's, I hadn't realised, written six of the things. And he, of course, had a disaster with his Kevin Rudd quarterly essay, which uh, came out just before things went rather pear-shaped for poor old Kevin. Uh, I was very lucky with this one. As you say, it was just in the process of going to the printers when uh, all the chaos broke loose. Uh, but they were able to hold off uh, the print run for first three days and then eventually a week. And that was just enough that uh, gave me time to change present tense to past tense. Malcolm Turnbull was instead of is and things like that. (laughs) But it was actually quite an affirming thing because the episodes and events of uh, of August uh, basically confirmed a lot of what I'd written about and, in fact, gave it a rather nice end point, uh, not, not 
sort of in a see I told you so sort of way, but it really just gave it a natural finish, I thought. So happily for you in this essay, discussions of political leadership have been abounding in Australia in recent weeks because of that spill. Um, But what actually made you want to write this essay and scrutinise not just Australian but international political leadership? Uh, well, it it's um, it, it really came from the first two essays, which were about, as you say, you know, ex- what we expect of governments, and uh, about our uh, about the decline we have uh, in uh, institutional memory of politics and and how we how we govern the country, and uh, it was really something somebody said to me about uh, political leaders last year that made me think, you know, light bulb moment. Well, here's the obvious thing that people talk to me about all the time. They just say, oh, you know, if we just had some decent leadership, you know, if the leaders were just okay. And it made me reflect on political leaders in the context of that idea of, you know, expectations of government. And I thought, well, let's actually think about what it is we expect our leaders to do. And one of the things I suppose it's crystallised for me after writing the essay is that, uh, is in, in a way which sort of pushes people to understand what I'm trying to get at in this essay is to say what we, we use this language of leadership coup uh, because it's, you know, it's a cliche and everybody knows what you're talking about. But all these coups have not been about leadership. They've been about battles for power, which is different. And so in the essay, I want to look at not just political leadership, but political leadership in the context of changing society not just changes in the media, which are often reflected upon, but the fact that a lot of the other institutions in our societies, which once provided leadership, and the most glaring example is the church over hundreds of years, um, have have gone into decline. And that puts uh, more pressure on our political leaders to provide a wider range of leadership, uh, even at the time when I think they're probably doing less leadership leading than they than they ever have. Yeah, that's a really interesting part of the essay, talking about the diminishing uh, influence of the church, I guess. But then I would think that rather than, I guess, the moral instruction or analysis that the church would have once provided, uh, I would have hoped, and I think a lot of other people would have hoped as well, that perhaps the realm of science and expertise would have mm. stepped in to fill that. But instead, as you argue in your essay, that, that onus has been put back on politicians. So they're under even greater pressure to be commentators on, you know, broad, broad aspects of Australian life. So why do you think the realm of science and the experts haven't necessarily taken up that space where the church has withered away? Well, it's a, a really good question. I mean, there are obvious examples of, of how that's happened, and that's been partly a political process that, uh, if you think about climate change as the really glaring example, um, uh, politicians, for various reasons, have chosen to diminish and belittle science. Uh, and so that's that's been part of the process, I think. Uh, I think there's probably just more a general scepticism around about about uh, anybody having any great expertise. I suppose uh, I came up the journalistic ranks uh, in economics uh, at a time when economics was was the thing that ruled the world. You know, in the 1980s, you know, there was free market economics and there was nothing and then there was dust in terms of the way political discussions were framed. And we've, we've got the afterlife of that now, I think, in the sense that, you know, the free market is seen as sort of still the preferred model, even though 
there are big questions about its impact on inequality. But uh, the, the, there was a, a very well-known English writer, Robert Skidelsky, wrote uh, a book called The Economist as Saviour about Keynes. And it was that sort of idea that economists could give people a sort of a model, you know, that you plugged in X uh, inputs and you'd get a really good output. And I think possibly the sort of decline of science, as we'd think about it in terms of beakers and you know, white lab coats, has partly been uh, a victim of the fact that economics as a science has also not delivered, I think, what, what uh, the great expectations were that, um, that it would uh, deliver, that uh, you'd, you'd get a rational world and you'd get rational outcomes. Well, it, it's turned out that it, that hasn't promised all it's delivered. So I suspect people have become a bit more sceptical for that reason as well. Yeah. And it was the British economist in light of Brexit that said the people have had enough of experts, yes. wasn't it? <laughs> Too many experts. <laughs> I, what would experts know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I want to come back to a paragraph early in your essay that you read at the beginning of this podcast, sort of going to a corner of media that not many people would perhaps equate with political analysis. And that's young adult fiction. So when did you, how did you come to the realisation that there are sort of clues about our political climate in young adult fiction? That was one of those uh, middle of the night thoughts, I suppose. I, I can't remember. I remember thinking it, thinking, oh, that's a good thought. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, I've, I have a daughter who's just about to turn 20. And uh, I remember being struck when she started reading the Harry Potter books as a five-year-old about how dark they were. You know, I mean, in the first book, you know, you know Harry Potter's parents get killed, you know, and it's all all a bit bleak, so I suppose I've been very conscious of that. You know, in the in the period when I was reading with her, and uh, you know, went through zombies and vampires and uh, and wizards, as I say, and it it just it's always made me wonder. Well, why why is it why are young people sort of uh, sort of being sort of attracted to all these really dark worlds? And I just started to think about the sort of disorder that applies in them. So it, it, I thought it was an interesting sort of observation to make because a whole, a whole of, lot of what I've tried to do in this essay is continually sort of break down the usual cliches and the usual frameworks for thinking about political leadership, as in you know, political coups and things, and just try to put it in some greater social milieu. Yeah, it did remind me of a, um, a study that I read about in the US, and I'm not sure how you know comprehensive the study was, but it was certainly interesting. They um they took some people who weren't necessarily super politically active, but people who supported Trump, and then they got them all to read the Harry Potter books from start to finish, mm. and they surveyed them before and after. And afterwards, they were far less likely to support Trump and his rhetoric. Um, the researchers really? sort of guessed maybe because of the books, I guess, you know, anti-authoritarian themes and that sort of thing. Oh, it wasn't uh, that they saw him all as Voldemort or anything. But... <laughs> <laughs> they might have been hinting at that, but <laughs> okay. we'll move on. Yep. So you adopt the definition of leadership provided by an author named Ronald Heifetz for the essay. Mm. What is his definition of leadership and why did it appeal to you as a useful definition? Uh, it, it appealed, I'd been doing the thing that you do when you decide to write about leadership, which was go to uh, Max Weber and... Uh, I was reading about Bismarck for quite a long time when I was in the South Pacific, which seemed a bit 
<laughs> an unfortunate waste of South Pacific time, mm. uh, and uh, and all the various theories about the great men of history and all those sorts of things. But I, I just I wasn't quite satisfied with those, and I stumbled across the Heifetz book, which turns out to be <laughs> sort of the one of the great authorities of of the era uh, about leadership and. What he says is, instead of trying to look at the circumstances of leaders, you look at what it is that leaders do, um, you know, when they're good at it. And he defines that as um, leading a community uh, through a change or to a to a conclusion, uh, which might not be a good one, uh, but 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 uh, regulating the way the debate continues, giving them giving them a proposal. But not just saying, you know, in a current context, let's have a GST, but then managing the debate, uh, including as many people in it as possible, uh, making them understand there's going to have to be a compromise, that you're not going to get all you want, and essentially getting to an end point in it. Um, and I think the other thing that's really important about the Hyafitz book is he does continually emphasise this difference between leadership uh, power and authority. They're three very different things. Power is, is having the job title of uh, Prime Minister. Authority is knowing how to use that job. And leadership is doing something with, with the job. Are there leaders that he provides or that you've thought of that exemplify his definition of leadership? I really liked his uh, use of uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, in the book um, because he's got... Uh, because Johnson is sort of this wonderfully flawed character. He's not this sort of charismatic figure. I mean, if you ask people who the great leaders of America were, that invariably say, you know, Lincoln, some people, and and, and uh, FDR, um, uh, they might say, some might say Kennedy because he was sort of inspirational. Um, the thing that's interesting about Johnson was that he was both a spectacular success and a terrible failure as a leader, and uh, and Heifetz goes through his extraordinary achievements, uh, Johnson's extraordinary achievements domestically uh, in the Civil Rights Act, which was essentially putting into practice the agenda that had been started by JFK, uh, but not actually delivered upon. And, uh, and it goes through the fact that uh, Johnson, as this very long-standing senator from Texas, really, really knew the workings of Southern politics. He absolutely understood how it worked and which lever to pull at any one time. But he also brought into play um, people like Martin Luther King uh, and both uh, enlisted them and assisted them in getting the change. But, you know, off, and it was, it was sort of hardball politics. It was saying, look, I can get you this far, but I can't get you any further than that at this stage. If you go any further than this now, I can't control this process. I can't make it work for you. So he sort of uh, corralled and used the voices of dissenters, uh, Heifetz says, to actually get an outcome uh, during the 1965 Selma uh, march um, on civil rights. But by comparison, uh, in Vietnam, of course, Johnson was a disaster. And Heifetz argues it was because he led, uh, he, he believed leaders led and followers follow and he didn't um, embrace all those voices of dissent uh, in the US and, uh, as a result, didn't listen to um, voices that might have stopped him making some really bad mistakes. So we have Heifetz's 
compromisers like Johnson, and then we have the strongman, which you talk about a lot in this essay. For people unfamiliar with that term, strongman politics, what does that mean? Uh, well, people think about strongmen, and I suppose there are, to me, two different kinds of strongmen in the world today. There are the people who are there because they're running an authoritarian regime. Um, North Korea is an uh, obvious an example. China, uh, Vladimir Putin in Russia, what's happening in Turkey at the moment. They're all really good examples of that. But in democracies or countries that still uh, like to think of themselves as democracies, the, the, the strong man is the guy who comes along and says, the system's really stuffed, you know, it doesn't deliver for you. Um, I can single-handedly sort of often, you know, destroy the system because it's not working and I can deliver a really simple solution for you. And obviously Donald Trump is pretty much in my sights in this regard. You know, make America great again, drain the swamp. So he's doing two things. One of them is he's uh, offering to um, uh, give a simple uh, outcome to voters. Um, and he's also essentially saying uh, the system's stuffed and I'm going to sort of stare it down or possibly uh, demolish it. And uh, this was not not originally going to be a major theme of the essay, but Trump was so overwhelming during the uh, first half of this year when I was writing it. that, And it, I think it raised a lot of questions for democracies around the world, what's happening to him, both in terms of thinking about what he's doing and how the political establishment in the US is uh, working in response, and also thinking about its implications for Australia's leadership and how we deal with a world where we've got these strong men who if uh, more of them emerge like Trump, don't put any great heed on cooperation internationally, on the international order. They're basically, in in pursuit of their very simple agendas, just really looking at their home bases um, in their own countries. Has Australia had anything close to a strong man? Well, I argue in the essay that Tony Abbott was that. Um, if you think about it, he, uh, he promised a series of very simple... Uh, solutions to voters, stop the votes, stop the taxes. Um, and he essentially said that, you know, minority government was a disaster and the Labor Party was terrible and he was going to sort of sort of crush through and crash through all of that and uh, get outcomes when the, um, the previous governments had not been able to do so. But uh, what I say in the essay is that... Um, People didn't like that sense of uh, paralysis in Canberra that they came to associate with the Gillard government. So they wanted to get rid of that, but they didn't actually quite deal quite so well with the idea of uh, somebody storming around and making captains' picks and captains' calls and um, making announcements that they weren't really prepared for. Yeah. Well, then speaking of our um, first interaction really with the biggest strongman of them all, perhaps Trump, um, you chose to include the entire transcription of Malcolm Turnbull's initial phone call to Donald Trump, infamous for perhaps its disaster. It's it's definitely compelling reading, um, fairly excruciating at some points as well. Mm. Why did you include that whole conversation in the essay? Mm. And I've got to say, I sort of put it in there with trepidation, thinking, oh, the editor's just never going to let me run this, because <laughs> it's about 3,000 words. Um, 
I put it in because uh, we can be, become too, shall we say, scientific about what leaders do. Uh, and one, and I think Turnbull's such an interesting character to be writing about in this context anyway, because you know so many people will say to you, "Oh, he should Turnbull should have just stared down the party on this, that, or the other, or he should have stared down the Parliament, or he should have you know just done this." And without a doubt, he, he's a, a flawed politician. But um, I always said, look, that sounds great in principle, but it's actually not that simple. Whoever whoever is the leader, and I thought that the um, I I wanted to include the Trump Turnbull conversation because uh, I was overseas when that story leaked um, on assignment, and so I was reading the stories all about everybody saying, oh, you know. Turnbull's such a goose and he looks really bad and all this stuff. So when I got back, I actually read the transcript and I thought, well, actually, that's not my reading on this at all. Um, here you've got this spectacularly ignorant, um, self-absorbed man in uh, Donald Trump who's come into this conversation about uh, the deal that Australia struck with the Obama administration on refugees, completely ill-informed and showing no compunction whatsoever to even be polite about an obligation to uh, honour the deal made with one of the country's closest allies, whoever it was who originally made the deal. I mean, this is quite shocking to the political establishment. They don't ever say that, but, you know, it's like you presume various givens in, in the way you conduct your professional life or your personal life. And one of them is is that, you know, if you're an ally, somebody will uh, honour a deal that's been made, uh, no matter who's been who's made it. So to me, this was a really classic illustration of this point that I'm making about how Trump really does upend the way Australia is going to be able to work in the world in future. Uh, because here's our Prime Minister just having to do everything he can to keep Donald Trump just on the subject when all Trump can say is, this is going to make me look bad, this is going to make me look bad, you know, this will be really terrible. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't give a rats about it, what it means for the alliance or anything else. So to me, whatever you think about Malcolm Turnbull, it was, it's an actual sort of masterpiece of getting, getting to the end of the conversation having got the outcome he wanted, which was getting a commitment, however grudging from Trump, that he would honour a deal that had been made. And uh, the same thing happened uh, on steel tariffs, though we haven't tragically got the uh, transcript of that conversation. <laughs> and I'd say, well, we're actually doing a lot better than a lot of other countries are, uh, you know, other allies of the US, uh, in actually getting this guy to honour an agreement. Yeah, it is an extraordinary conversation to read. And um, I think, especially because like a, a line sort of spouted about Turnbull a lot is his lack of spine. But I think you read that conversation and you think he's at least got some vertebrae connected in there. <laughs> well, whether it's spine or whether it's just, you know, sort of doggedness, yeah. um, you know, there's no great uh, principle or moral you know, highfalutinness about this conversation and people were very uncomfortable, to say the least, about some of the things that he said in the conversation in order to just, just keep Trump on board. But that's the reality of politics. You know, it's it's hardball. People say these things. And apart from else, we don't get to 
actually see or hear these real conversations that uh, the national leaders have all that often. So I was sort of galvanised by that, apart from anything else. Mm, do you see it as a bit of a high-fets moment for Turnbull? Uh, well, no, I see it more as just a transactional uh, sort of part of politics, I suppose. But uh, I thought it was interesting uh, as an example of just saying to people, this is what our political leaders actually have to do. You know, we, we can hope that they have a vision. We can hope they want us to lead to a better place. But this is actually what they do on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. On another continent, we have Angela Merkel, mm. who you spend quite a bit of time with in the essay. She's been the Chancellor of Germany since 2005, which is, in light of our political turnover, extremely impressive. What makes her leadership style so distinctive? Merkel's interesting because she just gives us one of those uh, sort of views of politics being conducted outside the square that we're used to seeing it uh, conducted in. Um, she she rarely talks. She doesn't give interviews as such. She might do the odd interview once every six months. Uh, she doesn't comment on uh, how the soccer team went or, you know, whatever, just the day-to-day sort of nonsense that our politicians feel compelled to comment on. Um, She always speaks last to the point where there's actually a verb that's been uh, created to describe being uh, a a prevaricator, uh, which is based on her name. Um, So she's the complete antithesis of what we've come to expect in a leader, yet she gets these outcomes, uh, which is basically a stable and successful government. The one thing where she broke from that was in her decision to let a million refugees into Germany in 2015. Uh, it was completely uncharacteristic for her. She just made a captain's call on it uh, and it's continued to haunt her, if you like, right through until last year's election. Um, it remains a contentious issue and I suspect it would have been contentious whatever the process had been, but I just think it gives us a way of thinking about leadership and saying it isn't always just the way we normally see it these days. Absolutely, yeah. And was it last year's election that you were in Germany Mm, for? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the differences between the way that that we do things politically here and in Germany are apparent through everything you've just talked about. But in terms of the way that it is reported and the debate plays out, did you notice marked differences there as well? It's very different. Um, it's it's different um, in lots of ways, like no political donations in Germany, thus no huge advertising campaigns. Um, the advertising uh, is quite hokey, you know, like it's all billboards, you know, little billboards sort of tacked on the side of the street. Um, that changes the, the dynamics of the campaign, of course. Uh, and uh, I think the um, the... Reporting of it is also different. Uh, it's because of that sort of multi-party nature of of the of uh, the last few governments, or, and in fact, uh, going back probably longer than uh, Merkel's reign, um, and the complexities of the voting system there. It wasn't sort of a, ever a two-horse race. It was um, it was obviously mainly between her and the uh, Socialist Party. Um, or the sort of left party, the Labor Party equivalent, the SDP. Uh, but it, there were all these different combinations of uh, possible outcomes uh, anticipated. So 
there was a bit more nuance in the way the political parties were reported upon and uh, it wasn't just about the two leaders. Mm. You also make a note at the end of your essay that in sort of surveying these different countries and the different ways um, politics is done and, and leaders go about leading, that the countries without the influence of Rupert Murdoch and his outlets, mm. you notice a marked difference between those with Murdoch and without. What was mm. that difference? Um, well, I think it's just, uh, I mean, I suppose there are two things. One of them is that um, in, say, in Germany and France, um, media is still much more diversified. You've got a lot more newspapers. Um, you have a much greater reading audience. Um, so, you know, I should preface it by saying that. I mean, um, uh, you know, the major uh, political weekly magazine in Germany has a readership of something like a million, you know. Or, wow. Sorry, sorry oh, it's it slumped to 700,000, as <laughs> okay. editors told me. Um, now, it's a bigger country, but nonetheless, you know, it's uh, people are very engaged and they want sort of, you know, more subtle information. Um, I think... Uh, Without a doubt, Rupert Murdoch has... It's not just that he has uh, played aggressively in politics in the UK, in Australia, in the US, but, you know, there's this cultural... uh, Well, there's a a culture war which um, he has backed, which I think uh, sort of moved into politics uh, in the US in particular with the Republicans. We've adopted a lot of that absolute... um, you know, destroy uh, or be destroyed sort of mentality, uh, this sort of idea that you just have to absolutely kill the credibility of your opponent. Um, You know, these are things that are, I think, uh, that that sort of start, I don't know who started it, but it's sort of, uh, it, it becomes this sort of, people talk about the echo chamber a lot, but you know, we see it in Australia in this in this sort of thing where it used to be that people would say, oh, Murdoch uh, tries to influence voters. Well, I don't think he actually tries to do that anymore. He tries to influence the politicians. And through um, Sky After Dark in Australia, uh, through Fox in, um, in the US, uh, and through his newspapers, he does try to just create this sort of uh, sense in conservative politics of where their interests lie, uh, and uh, and and it works. Yeah, you mentioned before, and speak about in your essay as well, the other change to the media in how we talk about politics, which is the moving away from the uh, I guess policy analysis and moving towards the analysis of how someone might consume a meat pie. Mm. Um, as a journalist, did you have you did you notice that gradual movement towards like an obsession with personality mm. quirks and what ACDC song yeah. our prime ministers can name? Yeah, uh, yeah, it has been a, a transition through the whole time I've been reporting out of Canberra, which is now <coughs> 30 years um, <laughs> or so. Uh, and I think there have been a range of reasons for that. One of them is that, um, you know, po- politicians have sort of brought it on themselves by being too clever by half, uh, by trying to control debates. Uh, and uh, that means we don't know about how these processes have been developing, how these policy discussions have been developing. Whereas when, when I came to Canberra, if there was a policy idea out there, there'd be lots of people talking about it. There'd be you know, what we call stakeholders who'd know what was going on. Um, you know, there'd be 
the, the government would have a reasonably open discussion about you know what what the proposals were. Uh, the the opposition would be involved now um, to try to maximise control over the, the discussion. These things are delivered as fait accomplis. So that on the policy side, there's not so much discussion. Um, and the uh, sort of acceleration of the media cycle combined with reduced resources in the media mean that um, we don't have specialists who can just concentrate, say, on the education debate out of Canberra all the time. You know, so somebody like me, you know, this week it might be education, next week it'll be uh, innovation policy, whatever. Um, so you're not going to have as a good a, a, a reporting as you previously would have. Um, so, so that changes, plus just the sheer demand for uh, new material means that we just stay shallow and and there's nothing more sort of straightforward than the soap opera of personalities in, in politics. So, Laura, as a last question, I'm part of that generation that since I started high school has not seen a prime minister complete a full term. Mm. After writing this essay, what do you think needs to change for us to see a prime minister survive longer than three years? Uh, well, I think it. Uh, one of the big themes I have in the essay is about self-indulgence. And uh, one of the things that I think has happened uh, and been sort of exacerbated by this decline of the sort of authority and voice of other institutions is that it's naturally sort of led to this and, and also um, the sort of decline in the size of majorities in uh, in the parliament means that the the power of individual MPs has increased. So a lot of these debates, which were once fought out across the community, are all taking place in a party room. Uh, now that's led, particularly on the coalition side at the moment, to individual MPs saying, well, you know, what can I get out of this? Instead of saying what used to be said, which was, well, I've got to sort of maximise my potential here, but ultimately my self-interest is served in the government of the day being re-elected. And uh, I, I sort of end the essay just pointing out the fact that this, mo- this most recent coup is bizarre, mostly because uh, the people who were instigating it were quite prepared to see the government lose the next election. They were quite prepared to take that risk. They weren't making this decision because they thought it would improve the government's chances. Um, now, until politicians get a grip and say, actually, this is this is this is rather balmy, um, we're going to have this problem. But on the positive side, the Labor Party, having gone through this sort of self-immolation uh, earlier in the decade, seems to have learnt its lessons. You know, to suggest that. The Labor caucus is a happy bunch of chappies and chapettes who all love each other and all agree on everything uh, would be, you know, completely wrong. Uh, but you don't hear all that much about it. Um, their interest is in getting elected, um, getting some good policies in place because they they think there's no point um, being in government unless you do stuff. So that shows us that if you can get that self-discipline and the lack of self-indulgence, you can actually see a return to a more stable government and with it a, ho- a change in a whole series, series of expectations about what politics is about, 
and what governments can do for us. Absolutely. Um, I lied when I said that was the last question. I do want to know as well. <laughs> can we expect another essay on the horizon for you, <laughs> shooting for maybe Mars record? I assume that's a record. I think it must be a record. <laughs> uh, look, I think um, I've I've sworn, uh, as I have previously, that there will never be another quarterly essay because they are incredibly, um, they're, they're a challenging length to write, but immensely satisfying. But uh, not for the moment. But, uh, you know, it, they've been about... 18 months to two years apart. So, you know, in a couple of years, I may be struck, you know, by another bit of inspiration. We shall have to wait and see. Who knows where we'll be then. Mm. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. Follow the Leader, Democracy and the Rise of the Strongman by Laura Tingle is published by Black Ink and is out now in all good bookshops.